0: Welcome back to Left Anchor.
1: I'm Alexi the Greek and I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we're welcoming to the show uh, Felicia Kornblue, who is the prof- a professor of history and Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at the University of Vermont. and she's coming on to talk about her book, which is just coming out A women's A Woman's Life is a Human Life. My mother, our neighbor, and the journey from reproductive rights to reproductive justice—it's uh, a, a very interesting uh, piece. It's it's about not just abortion rights, but also the um, fight against forced sterilization or semi-coerced sterilization that happened. Um, and this this is a piece of history that is much—it's it's not nearly as prominent, I would say, uh, as the fight against bans on abortion. I mean for obvious reasons today that's a lot more relevant but still relevant today and the history of eugenics that leads up to it racism and incarceration classism and so on some real disturbing stuff in there that that really sheds some light on a lot of um uh, existing political battles today
0: yeah a lot of uh, wonderful history that's um woven with personal narrative and uh, kind of astute analysis of, of the history and of how it relates to today. Um, also really interesting anecdotes, uh, from anecdotes on the Supreme Court to New York politics to, you know, the young lords for those who know, uh, that socialist activist group, um, to, uh, all kinds of, divisions in, in, in disparate, but related movements that inform kind of, uh, inter left divides today around, uh, reproductive justice questions and other, frankly, justice questions. Uh, I think it's a really good conversation, uh, really illuminates a lot of, of what's at stake today and how we should move forward on, um, these kind of interconnected issues, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. And, um, you know, we get into the, the the conversation about how, you know, it's not just about uh, the right to abortion and contraception. It's also about the right to be able to have the kids that you want. And that's, you know, I think the, the big piece of, you know, the other half of what they what she would call reproductive justice. That's kind of missing. But let's not uh, scoop ourselves here. Um, before we get into it, we, we got to mention the podcast is sponsored by the American prospect magazine. Um, if you subscribe to our Patreon at $10 a month, you'll get a, uh, free digital subscription to the website and, uh, also access to a discounted print subscription. Otherwise you can subscribe at $5, uh, patreon.com slash left anchor for our, our bonus episodes or just listen. Um, to the free ones, if you like, rate, review, send to your friends. Uh, we appreciate all of it and your feedback. So, yeah. Without wasting any more time, let's uh, get into our interview with Felicia Cornblue right now. So, welcome to the show, uh, Felicia. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Um, yes. You You've written a book here. I have my copy, uh, which you graciously sent me. Uh. A woman's life is a human life. Um, that's, you know, a bold statement, controversial. Um, you know, many may disagree, but, you know, we at Left Anchor, we also, we hold that uh, women are human beings, too. Um, i so glad to hear it. <laughs> My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. Um, so, to to. Kick us off here in the uh, conversation. You know, you're you're talking about two struggles here, and um, somewhat unusually for the 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 conversation of uh, reproductive rights in the United States, it isn't just about uh, abortion rights and contraception. There's also something else in there. So, could you explain the the two sort of struggles that you're talking about before we get into the personalities?
2: Yeah. And actually, first I'm going to say something about the title uh, at the risk of being pedantic. You'll, you'll spare with me. Bear with me. Um, so the title, A Woman's Life is a Human Life is a slogan from the activists I write about and from the period I write about. Yeah. And so for anybody who's wondering, the reason that I don't talk about pregnant persons or, you know, trans or non-binary people who also, of course, you know, are implicated in this issue. And frankly, people who identify as men or male are also, you know, implicated and also have reproductive rights that I think are really important and need to be respected, right? But the reason I don't um, speak in more general or gender neutral terms is because this was a slogan from the period and it was specifically, it was, um, it was a slogan of left of center reproductive rights activists who were engaging during the Reagan administration in the early 80s against this movement for a, a so-called human life amendment to the U S constitution, which was a human life amendment, which was only going to protect the rights of embryos and fetuses and not protect the rights of any adults. So they were trying to say, in contrast to that, you know, the people who are pregnant, um, and who are, whose bodies are holding the embryos or the fetuses, like they also have human rights. So just to, just to make that clear. And then yeah. that so the two struggles, yeah. Um, And thank you for asking that. The two struggles that I write about are the struggle to decriminalize abortion in the late 60s and early 70s, leading up to Roe versus Wade, and the struggle against sterilization abuse, the struggle to control or contain sterilization abuse. And what I argue, what I chronicle is that it's that second struggle that leads ultimately to what we today call reproductive justice. Demands for and the emancipatory vision for reproductive justice, which is, which is still today a much, much bigger set of demands than the demand for legal abortion alone.
1: Gotcha. And so, um, Yeah. Your mother, uh, Beatrice Cornblow. Am I pronouncing that one right? Um,
2: It's it's corn blue, like the vegetable and the color. Corn
1: corn blue. Blue. Gotcha. I got to screw up one pronunciation per episode. It's in the contract. And uh, (laughs) you were the victim, unfortunately. But so your, your mother had quite a remarkable story here. In this first struggle you're talking about with the the, the fight for uh, legal abortion in New York State uh, in the 60s. So can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah. So this is a story. It's about my mother. And, and beyond that, kind of, um, uh, in addition to my mother and, and surrounding my mother, it really is the story of how abortion ceased to be a crime in the United States in that period. And so my mom was a member of the New York chapter of the National Organization for Women now. And now, it when it was founded in the middle 1960s, um, and particularly in New York, was a much more radical organization than maybe we think of it as being today. And it really was uh, an organization of people who were deeply committed to women's Civil rights, And they were thinking very much about the successes that the black civil rights movement had had, especially the successes it had through the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of So-Called Colored People, um, you know, which had gone to the Supreme Court and won Brown versus Board and had won all these amazing victories against Jim Crow segregation in the South. And so they wanted to be that kind of civil rights organization. And What they, what they found in the early years, um, again, especially in this New York chapter, was that when they started talking about women's civil rights, many activists started coming forward and saying that the abortion laws, the criminal abortion laws that made this basically safe, medically safe, um, and, and often necessary procedure, um, made, those laws made the procedure inaccessible and therefore, you know, made people do extraordinary things in order to get abortions, and sometimes um, made them harm themselves or die. Even right that those laws were uh, were a perfect example of a violation of women's civil rights, and that in order to have civil rights, women were going to need people were going to need to undo those criminal abortion laws. So, within the activist world, within now and other people who were who were pushing this. Very quickly, their position became a full repeal, right? So absolutely no restrictions on what somebody could choose to do in the area of abortion. And their position was, this is none of the government's business, right? Just get the government out of it. So my mom was the only lawyer who was on the abortion and contraception committee of New York now. And so it became her job to literally go through the entire state legal code and find every place where abortion was mentioned. Um, and that would have been in the criminal section of the legal code, but also like in the, in the section of professional regulation, because there was a standard that, um, any doctor who performed an abortion would lose their medical license to practice in, in New York state, right? So she had to find all those places where abortion was mentioned and then create some statutory language, some legislative language that would replace it right, that would, that would be an alternative and would effectively take abortion out of the legal code and represent this activist position. So what, what now did was they handed this draft law that my mother literally drafted to a Republican woman legislator named Constance Cook, who was a VP of the state chapter of now, and to a newly elected liberal Democrat, a reformist Democrat named Franz Leichter who was our local assemblyman, and uh, and Cook and Leicester immediately introduced it into the New York state legislature. Full repeal, no restrictions, which is, by the way, better than or more liberal at least than what New York has today, right? Um, they were way ahead of the curve, you could say, in January 1969 at the start of that legislative session saying, you know, absolutely no restrictions on somebody's choice. So that wasn't what ultimately passed. Um, as I said, New York still doesn't have that. Um, but that set a standard. It was galvanizing for the movement locally in New York and nationally. And it was that New York law that really got um, women and other advocates for the decriminalization of abortion into the streets in huge numbers. Right. And it also became the galvanizing point for the creation of NARAL. NARAL didn't exist. Um, it was started as the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws. And the New York repeal law, my mom's law, was was the first such effort to really turn the repeal impetus into actual legislation. So that's what my mom did.
0: That's awesome. And it's so important, I think, to highlight that the narrative you just told there is part and parcel of how the book narrates the history to show that the failures weren't always failures and that the different efforts kind of uh, give a sense of what's required, not just then, but today, in order to do anything right from the ground up, it, it has to have uh, the kind of utopian demands that at the time seem maybe impossible or unlikely to succeed. And even if they fail, that galvanizes a more grassroots action and leads to other organizations. And, and we're going to get into some of the maybe unfortunate failures to have alliances among uh, women and groups from different perspectives focusing on different harms and different solutions. Um, but I just want to note that th- this is a, a kind of important history that tells us uh, what is required in terms of fighting the battle on all fronts in order to, to, to really bring about transformative change. Um, so, so I don't, I, I don't know. Before we get into too much of the, the details, I just want to kind of frame that for the audience, and and uh, I don't know what at what point you that was part of the project for you, where you discerned that as an important point.
2: Yeah, I'm so glad that that's the way the story landed for you. That's really the way it occurred to me too. And you know, as a as a historian and as a feminist, I think in an interesting way, I've learned more about people who are more radical than my mom. And I'm not sure why, but um, there's been more writing and even more kind of ordinary talk, you know, in activist circles about people who called themselves radical feminists, people who were allied with the women's liberation movement, you know, who who used much more in-your-face tactics than my mom did. You know, they were much more closely affiliated with the movement uh, to end the war in Vietnam and so on. Um, and... And I don't want to obscure their role, right? Because the radical feminists, the women's liberationists, the the people who are engaged in civil disobedience and direct confrontation, they were incredibly important. And part of the way that they were important was that they were working with people who were doing more of this kind of legislative inside work. I mean, it was a little bit Malcolm Martin, but even more like, remember, there was that debate um, when when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were competing against each other in 2008 and um, Hillary was talking about Lyndon Johnson's role in civil rights legislation. And Obama was talking about the role of the grassroots movement. And um, you know, I would say that the grassroots movement probably, you know, pushed the needle more than the legislative insiders. But, but at the end of the day, really they needed both. Right. And I think you see the same kind of dynamic here, um you know my mom alone wouldn't have been able to do it but the people who were doing confrontations who didn't know anything about how to write legislation and didn't really care about that you know and they weren't going to go to the state capitol and do the the on the ground lobbying right they really needed each other um and they also needed you know women of color activists who were involved um and who came out in the streets and and so on um so um, I think it's a great it's a great example of social change making for us to think about today.
0: Right. You even point out how Roe v. Wade, uh, you know, Blackmun and others that that uh, voted in favor of it were leaders in some sense, but in other sense, they were followers. They were responding as as many good court decisions, the few that there are out there, uh, they, they tend to not uh, be sui generous, but f- but respond to activism and other challenges and other uh, work being done by organizers.
2: Yeah, I don't think I don't think Justice Blackman was a leader at all, frankly, <laughs> you know, and this. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, so Blackman he he was the guy who actually wrote the Roe versus Wade opinion. Um, it was published in January 73, 50 years ago. And I think he he was sympathetic, but it really was this energy that was coming from below and the very specific legislative and court-based precedents that had been established. So the fact that there was this law in the books in New York and what they wound up doing, you know, when they sort of amended down or negotiated down from my mom's position, what New York wound up doing was allowing people to make free decisions about abortion through the 24th week of a pregnancy. And that's just about the two trimester period that that Blackman then would write into the law, and Roe versus Wade. And then I also show that there was um, federal litigation that came out of New York, that came out of the New York struggle. It was mass litigation with hundreds of people involved, especially activist women, feminist activist women. And that litigation then produces it, it winds up going national, and there, there are cases um, all over the country. And there's in particular, there's a case in Connecticut. Um, and there, there, are two decisions from, from federal judges in Connecticut that then wind up feeding directly into Blackman's opinion in Roe versus Wade. So we see, I mean, and there are other ways too in which, um, even though it's kind of obscured, if you just look at the, at the con law, you know, if you look at the, the opinion in Roe versus Wade or you look at the excerpt that's in some constitutional law textbook, you can't see the traces of the movement, but if you read my book, you can, and you can see very clearly, right? It was because of their work in this very multifaceted, you know, collaborative system that they had going that, um, that they were able to kind of provide the ballast, the opportunity, the foundation for black men to do what he did. Otherwise, I don't think black men would have done much.
0: And he even had that quote. It was uh, terrible to read. This misogynistic quote he said about the the attorney and how she was pretty and plump or something. So like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of times mm-hmm. these yeah. are not the the greatest um, characters that are in power. But if we can pressure them to do the right thing, then we can, we'll we'll take it. I guess right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, Blackwood he was an old fashioned Midwestern guy. So yes. On the on the the first day when Roe versus Wade is being argued, Sarah Weddington who became a very famous feminist attorney um and who recently passed away he described her as rather pretty comma plump um and um you know that's where his head was at at that time he gave her a c plus for the argument by the way later you know later historians would give her a better grade
1: yeah boy thanks justice we we appreciate your comments uh there's yeah never never been a, a greater you know hive of tendentious bullshit than the Supreme Court <laughs> <laughs> world's worst arguments. Um, we
2: call that judicial mansplaining. I guess.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> judicial mansplaining, manspreading.
0: F- f- I was gonna say, for all we know, judicial manspreading goes on. We can't see you know beneath the. But
2: uh, <laughs> that's, that's the real the reason that Justice Sotomayor stays in her chambers. Doesn't go. It's the manspreading. <laughs>
1: Um, the, uh, I, I had, uh, I want to move, I want to move on. I'm a a little bit more interested in the second part of the book, but before we do that, you, you have an uh, interesting, uh, sort of little capsule history of, um, previous abortion laws, uh, you know, in New York state and then going back to before there was a New York state and like English common law and the sort of the colonies, um, which is quite interesting. Um, and then as well, a, a, uh, a, a, some nice little description of the, the backlash to this bill passing in, in New York and in other States, you know, you get the really frenzied pro-life mobilization happening now. And I wonder, you know, uh, given that like this book is just coming out, like we, we have now to this day, like, new abortion restrictions being passed, uh, you know, at the state level, like practically every couple of weeks or months, uh, and like conservative states seemingly trying to outdo each other in how they, uh, you know, make more, uh, violently restrictive laws and punish people, punish doctors, punish women. Um, and how you see sort of, you know, on, on the one hand, this, this conservative argument that, like, uh, well, Roe versus Wade has to be overturned because it's not fitting with, like, the deep history of the American, you know, like the American project, which is just complete nonsense. But also, how, like, the modern, like, almost frenzied extremism around abortion and how far out of step it is with popular opinion kind of, uh, h- how that maybe differs or is similar to, um, the 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 way that the initial anti abortion backlash uh got started you know right after you know people like your mother were making their initial successes
2: um well that's a lot of questions um, <laughs> to let me, uh, i think what one you know one thing to one thing to to fasten on i think and to start with that you identified is. In the in the Supreme Court's opinion, the majority opinion in Dobbs, which overturned Roe, um, Justice Alito does make this claim that Roe versus Wade was somehow foreign to American traditions and American law and so on. And there has been a lot of like right wing energy in recent years put into sort of obscuring a fact that that is quite clear to professional historians, you know, historians of law and gender and medicine. And it was it was clear to it started to become clear to the activists that I write about. So and the and the big fact is right before the early 19th century, no American state legislated on abortion at all. There was no such thing as abortion legislation. And the federal courts had nothing to say about it. And the Supreme Court had nothing to say about it. Like there was no there was no understanding that it was the legislature's business, whether the state legislature or the federal legislature. There was no understanding that it was the business of the of the federal courts or the Supreme Court. Yep. However, there was some there was some regulation. Well, I should say in New York in particular. Right. So New York was one of the first states um that did regulate abortion by legislation, by statute. And that was a law that was passed in 1828, and then it started to be implemented in 1830. Um, and most states were considerably later than that. So, so that tells you, right, if you, we can make an argument that it's, it's the legislation, the state legislation that forbids abortion, that in some ways is foreign to American traditions, right? Um, before there was legislation, there was the English common law, and the English common law is Important when the United States is um, is not a country, but it continues to be important after the the United States becomes a country in seventeen seventy six. Actually, we do we import the English common law into America, um, and still today, common law is part of our law. And so, the the standards of English common law do have some power, like there is some binding power. But what the common law says is that abortion is only problematic. It's only a crime after so-called quickening and quickening is the point at which uh, a pregnant individual can feel the baby kick or the fetus kick. Right. And almost nobody was ever prosecuted under this, right. It was incredibly rare for anybody to be prosecuted in the case of, of an abortion. Um, and you have to testify
0: if, against yourself, basically, right? You have well, to- <laughs> exactly,
2: and that's right. That's what the that's what the legal and medical historians have pointed out, right? Is that if you're the only one who can say when the entity inside you is kicking, then you're the only one who can ever prosecute yourself. And people were not about to do that, right? Also, you know, there's there's a lot of evidence that what they really cared about was people dying from like different kinds of um, right, right? Is, different kinds I mean, of herbs they
0: Actually, part of Blackman's argument as to why restrictions are OK, it actually people, I think, allied to this point. But, but the restrictions on abortion were actually in his argument about the life of uh, the pregnant person, right?
2: Yeah. So so what Blackman says is that um, in the second trimester, for example, um, this is talking about Roe versus Wade. So fast forwarding right to the so, 70s. <laughs> oh, that's OK. Um, what Blackman says is, right, the, the only, the only possible restrictions you can have are ones that have to do with health. So, for example, you, he was trying to say that it would be all right if a, if a state wanted to regulate abortion to say abortions have to be provided by licensed MDs or they have to be provided in hospitals. You know, now the radical feminists didn't want that either. Um, but, but, but you can understand, right? There's a long history in America of, Um, you know, kind of paternalistic, but maybe also public policy minded, um, concern about the health implications of some abortions and some abortion practitioners, right? Um, so that's a very old thing. Um, but the idea that somebody would, somebody or some, some doctor or some midwife who performed an abortion safely, right, would get prosecuted doing a safe, Abortion, um, on someone, like, that's, that actually is very foreign to American traditions. Um, it, that only starts happening in the early 20th century and like the 1920s, um, when kind of crusading, um, district attorneys make their mark as, you know, morals police or pseudo morals police going after these people that they call the abortionists, you know, and they turn them into these kind of modern Satan figures. Um, Right. But it's really that's really new and actually really strange if you think about it against um against American history from the 17th century forward.
1: Yeah. Th- uh, it's so much in modern conservatism is just invented traditions. You know, exactly. like we're we're the defender of the hallowed realities of being able to play video games and mom you can't tell me to go to bed and and so on and so forth (laughs) Uh,
2: yeah the ancient traditions that you know existed for some upper middle class white people in the suburbs between about 1955 and 1965 right that's very important that we defend that
1: but one last thing uh before we move on um my 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 muddled question which just sort of like bundled two things together though the 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 question of of how you see, I mean, you write about it in the book to to some extent, but, but, but tell listeners about the, 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 the way, you know, how you see the sort of historical context of the, the, the modern anti-abortion movement and the sheer extremism and anti- democratic strategies that they use. You talk about that in the book too, you know, to, to just like basically stuff these incredibly unpopular. I mean, we're talking like single digit polling stuff. So like, you know, even victims of rape or incest can't get an abortion. Even if you're dying, you can't get an abortion. We're going to kill the fetus and the mother because that's what God would want. Um, that level of just like nutty, you know, just bug eyed extremism. Like, how does that sit in your view with the sort of like sweep of this stuff?
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you came back to that. Um <laughs> And, and by the way, that's not what my God wants. <laughs> just,
1: neither. just for the
0: record. Which, which, I mean, in the book, you do a great job of pointing out, what like, rabbis, priests, pastors, a, a lot of, um, people that are part of the activist story, right? To fight against that kind of reactionary, uh, theo- theological appropriation, we should say. Um, that's yeah. part of the story. Yeah.
2: yeah. 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 Right. I try and say, I try to, to not even say, um, That the so-called pro-life politics are Catholic, because it's not even Catholics. It's, it's a conservative Catholic minority, you know, among American Catholics. Um, uh, but to talk about the, the then and now, like, um, to me, it's a little bit tricky. I think there's a lot, there is a lot of commonality, and there also is, um, some real distinction. And so the commonality I see is, for example, right after New York changes its law, and becomes the most liberal jurisdiction in the country arguably in the world right and people start coming from all over the US and from other countries to New York because there's no residence requirement right they can come and they can get a a, a safe legal abortion procedure in New York right so right after that the pro life movement goes berserk because they didn't really think it was possible or at least that's 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 what i conclude right that they didn't really think it was possible for them to lose so bad in New York um, or anywhere. But then they see that it is possible and they, you know, and they work very hard um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of Catholic hierarchical money that's poured into the so-called pro-life effort and there's a lot of growth and they start to diversify for the first time. This is before Roe versus Wade, right? In New York, they start to diversify a little bit um, from a, a originally virtually all Catholic base to include some evangelical Protestants and a few Orthodox Jews, right? So it starts to widen out a little bit. Um, and of course we'll see that much more later. Um, so in some ways that's similar to what we see later, although it's in a, it's really, um, in its infancy, so to say, um, the other thing is that they go to court and they immediately, the, uh, there's a, uh, a lawyer who teaches at Fordham Law School, who also is the head of the Metropolitan Right to Life Committee in New York City. And he brings the first so-called fetal rights litigation in a federal court and says that fetuses have all of the rights of already born and adult persons under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. And because they have those rights and rights under the Declaration of Independence, the right to life, liberty, and all that stuff, um, Right. That therefore the New York law must fail. The New York law is unconstitutional by the by the U.S. Constitution. And at the time, that is a very, very far out bizarro argument to make. And right. And the lower level, the the, the New York state courts don't pay it any mind, really. And then when Justice Blackman and the Supreme Court majority are figuring out what to do with Roe versus Wade, they look at that case and they say, no, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Right. So they re- they reject it. But um, that is the first time that that kind of argument is made. And of course, um, we are now kind of looking down the barrel of the gun at a possible Supreme Court opinion that would uphold fetal rights along those lines. So in some ways, what's going on today is really different, you know, because that kind of argumentation has a hearing, um, you know, is, is going to be taken very seriously in the Supreme court probably. Um, and in 1970, 71, it wasn't taken very seriously, but we also see, you know, there's a commonality in that right out of the gate, right. That was where, that was where the pro-life movement went. They started arguing fetal rights. They started arguing that basically pregnant people were victimizing, you know, the, the, the fetuses they carried—that they were perpetrated they described them as perpetrators, and the and described you know fetuses and embryos as victims, and said you know they needed to be protected by the by the courts.
1: Yeah, every every pregnant person is a suspect by this view, and if you have exactly. a miscarriage or stillbirth or something. There needs to be an investigation,
0: and, and I think there's a transition to talking about the second story and the second movement um, that will show some of the um, contradiction in that because they don't really care, right, about being "quote unquote" pro-life, uh, and and I guess we 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 could get into the forced sterilization piece and, and the the kind of the way that the the movement to. Uh, decriminalize and the the history of of fighting for reproductive justice and not just reproductive rights is something that tries to consider more fully uh, all of the ways in which um, the freedom to be a a parent or not be a parent is more inclusive of the rights that should be fought for. And the the ways that uh, decriminalizing doesn't touch on the paternalism, misogyny, the racism, the ableism, uh, and some of the perspectives that uh your neighbor and your mom's neighbor down the hall helped bring into the conversation and bring into the fight for for justice uh because of the way that that race and class um and you know colonization and and Puerto Rican perspectives uh frankly come come into the politics and the history so if you wouldn't mind transitioning and showing that that kind of complementary story
2: yeah well so the the right to life movement has Never really been a right to life movement. Um, uh, although I would also say, and I argue this in the book, that, um, in some ways, the movement for reproductive rights has not been, you know, a fully robust and fully respectful movement for reproductive rights. And I say that with a lot of sorrow. I say that as somebody who's been very involved in Planned Parenthood of Northern New England and Planned Parenthood here in Vermont, where I live, um, And a lot of us are, you know, are working to make the movement good to its promise and good to its name. Um, And, you know, and we're still working on that. So um, what happens in the 70s and 80s is after New York changes its law and then after Roe versus Wade, right, um, that's a great victory. And it's a great victory for, you know, for everyone who might who might seek um, any kind of control over their reproduction or whose partner you know, might want or need that control. Um, but very quickly, there are activists who realize that legalizing access to abortion isn't enough, right? And they realize it because, um, for example, in New York's Lincoln Hospital, which is a really crappy public hospital that serves mostly black people and Puerto Ricans in the South Bronx, right? After New York changes its law, a woman dies uh, from a legal, fully legal abortion procedure, right? A Puerto Rican woman named Carmen Rodriguez and the, the young Lords, which is a Puerto Rican militant organization has just taken over this hospital, you know, because they, they saw what an appalling hospital was, you know, terrible facilities and terrible patient to doctor ratios and all that stuff. So, um, so they, they politicized the death of this woman from a legal abortion procedure. And Um, the doctor who was my next-door neighbor, uh, Dr. Helen Rodriguez-Trias, has just been named the head of the pediatrics department at that same hospital. She's the first Puerto Rican ever to be head of that department. And so she's there when they're talking about the fact that making abortion legal obviously isn't enough, right? It's, it's, It's clear that it's not enough. If you still have a doctor who's untrained or... Ambivalent about you or doesn't read your chart closely enough, right? If you're in an underserved hospital with crappy facilities and, you know, all of that stuff, then it's clear that legal access to abortion is not sufficient and that you need something different. You need, you need adequately funded, you know, um, fully accessible and available health care. All kinds of health care, <laughs> you know, community based health care, preventive health care what they called for was healthcare under community control, right? Meaning that they would have some democratic say. Um, and then it's even more apparent after Roe versus Wade, and there's a huge national scandal about the involuntary, apparently involuntary sterilization of two young black girls, 12 and 14 years old, um, the Ruff sisters um, in Alabama. And there's a federal a woman with a, on the federal government, uh, payroll, a nurse being paid by the federal government who decides that it's in the best interest of this 12 year old and this 14 year old, that they be sterilized and never be able to have children. And she decides that because she thinks that the girls are, um, of below average intelligence, you know, and that they're not going to be able to use contraception effectively. And, you know, she's also motivated. She's a white nurse, you know, with these black girls. And she's obviously motivated by some kind of racial idea that, you know, black people shouldn't be having kids or at least poor black people shouldn't be having kids. And it's just it's so appalling and tragic. And so some of the people I write about, including my my late neighbor, Helen Rodriguez Trias, go into political action around this. And they try and bring this issue to the women's movement, you know, and the women's health movement, which is just getting off the ground and say, like, we need to take on this Scandal of sterilization abuse. And the mainstream women's movement, the majority white women's movement isn't interested. They just don't, they don't get it. And they actually are opposed to having new restrictions on, um, on sterilization or new guidelines that would attempt to prevent sterilization abuse. Um, and it's a huge rift in the movement that we haven't really dealt with at all in the 50 years since it happened.
1: Yeah. This, I this I think was my uh, maybe not my favorite part of the book per se, but I think the 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 part that is most uh, kind of interesting and, and like vital to modern conversations because that split you're talking about definitely exists today. Um, I can recall a certain Washington Post columnist who will go a name talking about how we need to be giving out free IUDs to poor people. Because that's how we're going to solve poverty. We're going to stop the poor people from having kids. Um, that's not sterilization, you know, this much, this is comparably uh, nicer policy, I guess, but, you know. Um,
2: not that much nicer. No,
1: <laughs> it's not. <laughs> well, not, at least no. theoretically, you know, you could reverse it. <laughs> but, 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 point being, like, like, the what the the argument that they were making that you're making in the book is that there is another side to reproductive freedom. Reproductive freedom is not just access to contraception and abortion. Reproductive freedom is the ability to have kids if you want to have kids and to have as many kids as you want to have. I mean, I w- that's what I would endorse. And to reorganize society such that you can do that if you want to. Like that that is freedom. Um and that part of the equation. Setting up, uh, a universal healthcare system, having like free, uh, insurance, uh, c- coverage for children or pregnant people, or shall we say everyone, uh, in society? <laughs> like that is a critical part of the reproductive health agenda, as well as like a welfare state to, to, to give a child allowance to families. Um, and that, you know, is like, I feel like there's a ton of work to be done. Uh, In even in terms of like lefty and liberal discourse and like like uh, explaining and and pushing that aspect of the narrative that it's just as important as, uh, you know, abortion rights, which are very important, you know, but it's it's two sides of the same coin, the ability to choose one way or the other. And you look at surveys, the Guttermacher Institute does them right. I I believe you mentioned this. What One of the number one reasons, number two, number three, depending on on how you read it, why do people get abortions? I can't afford a kid. And that's not really a great, like, from a justice standpoint, uh, being economically coerced away from having children shouldn't necessarily want that outcome. You want people to make that decision, you know, in a sort of level playing field. So I very much appreciate it. I don't know. I'm sort of (laughs) ranting now, but, but I mean, can you speak to this, you know, the lack of attention even to this day on that aspect of, of reproductive freedom?
2: Yeah. And, uh, I think you said it beautifully, you know, um, that it, it has really been neglected. And I think, you know, even today people will use the language of quote unquote reproductive freedom or quote unquote reproductive justice. But we use those terms very loosely, I find. Um, my friends in Planned Parenthood use them very loosely. If you actually go back and look, like the, it's the people I write about who, who invented the term reproductive freedom and used the term. And they meant something very big, right? And, and then that, that was even expanded in the early 2000s when women of color organized for what they named reproductive justice. And it was precisely this, the right to have a child as well as the right to refrain from having a child. And the the sterilization abuse piece is is integral here because um, I see that as sort of the starting point because if it's sterilization abuse, right, it's, it's the most literal sense in which somebody might deprive you of the right to have a child, right? You know, you want to refrain from childbearing, so you want to have contraception, you want to have um, abortion access. Um, but then if you're subject to sterilization abuse, you know, you physically are unable to choose to have a child. That's, that's a choice that's taken off the table and stolen from you. And, but I think from that starting point of fighting sterilization abuse, um, activists come to have this much bigger understanding. And they, they do that because they're socialists, because they're fighting Puerto Rican, uh, they're fighting imperialism on the island of Puerto Rico. Helena Bigastrias Trias was, you know, from Puerto Rico. And many of her allies were from the Puerto Rican Socialist Party and the Young Lords, and they were very aware of that colonial background. They were fighting racism, right? They're fighting class differences, um, and, uh, fighting capitalist prerogative, right? And so they come to understand that that's really what's necessary to have, to have robust, meaningful reproductive rights. And they call it reproductive freedom or they call it reproductive justice. And, um, I don't know. It's very frustrating that, that even on the liberal left, that we still haven't quite gotten our heads around it. And, um, I don't know. Sometimes I think that like, you know, for people from working class backgrounds and, and from communities of color are, are awfully nice to not point it out <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> you know, to the mainstream reproductive rights movement, because really the reproductive rights movement, has something to answer for in this way. And it's kind of continuing unwillingness to embrace this wider agenda and to really think about it. And, and sometimes, you know, continuing willingness to kind of play footsie with, um, with folks who want to coerce poor people or people of color to not have kids, you know, by, you know, by giving them free IUDs and insisting that they implant them or whatever. Um, you know, it's not okay. It's really not, a, that's not, you know, that's not liberalism, I'll just say. It's not liberalism, it's not a left position. Um, the left position is that people should be able to make choices about what kinds of families they want to have, and with whom, when, under okay. what circumstances, at what time in their lives, etc. They're going to have kids. I think that's that's the vision we want.
0: Right, and, and it strikes me that um, you know, this tracks with a number of splits on the left that Uh, also see more radical concepts, terms from identity politics to intersectionality get appropriated by um, what I would might call liberal or you could call centrist, uh, white privileged, you know, uh, upper class appropriations of more radical movements and concepts uh, to obscure the the need for the, the, the truly intersectional um solutions to intersectional problems which have to do often with the intersections of from imperialism to racism to um you know uh, class struggle and uh even ableism like there's something i think in our disputes even today on the left that um that, that tend to kind of go down those two paths either you see the interconnections in these problems and therefore in the solutions or you don't and if you don't what it tends to look like is ignoring those voices who say I'm glad that you can pay because this is part of the history too. I'm glad that you can pay for the ex- expensive abortion that's now, uh, legal, but I can't afford that. And so even if you're not sterilizing me, I can't afford the, the, <laughs> the abortion, or I can't afford to have the kid. Um, and, right. and all Where the
2: money to go to some other state, right? Exactly. Like state to travel,
0: can- uh, all these many things that are just totally obscured from the position of those who are privileged not to have to worry about those problems. Right.
2: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think, I think it's interesting. It's, this has sort of been a persistent critique since the late 1970s. It's been present. And this was one of the key insights, I think, of socialist feminism of that period. And, and one of the most, one of the most grounded and concrete things that American socialist feminism really contributed to, to the, the intellectual and theoretical, um, output of the American left. But like does anybody know that? Right. <laughs> is anybody yeah. even I mean is anybody I mean, even historicizing <laughs> socialist feminism? I'm like eh. right, not that right. I really, you know, not that I've really noticed. I, I, I'm I, in
0: the history business. I remember just being so struck when I first heard Angela Davis talk about the glass ceiling metaphor and she says if you're using the glass ceiling metaphor, you're already by the ceiling. Congratulations for you. (laughs) You know, right. right, We women of color down here, we're looking up at you as you just punch through the ceiling. Uh, And, and yeah, so I I think that's so much relevance, even, even today. Um, So what what do you think are the contemporary instantiations of these two movements um, that, that you think could learn from your book and the kind of, uh, I, there's almost a kind of there's a tribute to both women uh your mom and um you know your your neighbor uh and to the the contributions of of each movement but a kind of also sad uh, wish for there's probably a german word for like nostalgia for something that didn't happen but like uh, uh, you know wishing that they would have actually actively work together, right? And is there something for today that, that, that you see that, that could, we could bring together, uh, these disparate parts of the left, uh, and we could learn from the history in that way?
2: Um, yeah. Well, first I just want to say, I, I don't mean to be glib about it. You know, again, I was on the board of Planned Parenthood of Northern New England, and that was before Roe versus Wade was overturned, you know, when things were relatively good. Um, and one of the things I learned, um, which I already, you know, kind of knew as a historian of social movements but then saw in really concrete ways is that service providing organizations and advocates have to choose their battles. And it is very very hard. You know, it is they have finite resources. You know, that's always true, it's more true now. Um the the people who are working in this area, they really have been up against it and they've been facing this this incredibly virulent concerted opposition since the get-go, right? Since New York changed its law in the spring of 1970 and even more since Roe, you know, and more, 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 (laughs) more recently as the Supreme Court has sort of, you know, allowed states to do more and more things. And then finally, of course, overturned Roe. So, So I don't mean to be unsympathetic to the constraints that they're genuinely under and that they feel themselves to be under, right? And sometimes, you know, when we look back, we look at some social movement activist, you know, we admire their single mindedness and say, you know, that's how they got stuff done. So that may, you know, that may be what people think is that they have to be single minded and that they can't afford to widen their agenda. Um, I happen to think that's that's a, that's a, a an incorrect political analysis. Um, and I also think it's really troubling. And so I think that's where the conversation needs to be. Um, I think that, you know, I think that we need to have internal conversations with folks who are active in NARAL and active in Planned Parenthood and, you know, donors and board members and people in, you know, in other organizations that care about these issues, people in DSA and, you know, um, people in the American Prospect family, like, I think we should all be really thinking about this, right? It is a really tough time. And how do we balance This kind of terrible fear that we have that people aren't going to be able to get the abortions they want or need with the fact that we also know that there's a much wider agenda that is really the agenda that we need if people are going to have genuine reproductive freedom. Mm -hmm. Right. And and maybe we can't do everything. Maybe we have a vision, you know, of the future we want to create. And that, that eman- emancipatory vision goes under the name reproductive justice mm. or reproductive freedom, right? Mm. And we keep that in our minds. But then maybe today what we do is we fight for abortion access and we fight for a higher minimum wage. You know, we choose that battle as our reproductive justice battle. Or maybe today we're fighting for, you know, free and accessible abortion and we're fighting for universal health care. And that's the one battle that we can take on. That's a reproductive justice battle. Maybe, maybe in fact, we can't do it all, but we have to do some, mm. you know, and, and I think that's the way to win too, to build. I mean, we already have a majority, right. As Ryan was saying, we know that we're in the majority, but if we actually stood, um, if we passed the laugh test, right. To working class people and communities of color to say, we really care about you having some genuine freedom. In this part of your lives, like our the majority would be overwhelming. And, and you know, and maybe there wouldn't be this kind of I don't know, horrible bifurcation between so-called white feminism and uh the rest of the country, right? Maybe there would be maybe that's a path right. to healing some right. of the some of that break.
0: Yeah. That's great. Just to follow up on that, because I'm hearing both the importance of a kind of uh, cohesiveness and unity so that there, there is a, a real message that's coherent, that's heard and that, that reaches people who aren't usually political or come from different backgrounds and something that could really, uh, onboard a lot of people to, to be, uh, active politically and to support change. Um, but I'm also hearing, you know, to address the kind of, um, pitfalls of white supremacy or, or kind of white privilege. Do you think there are certain things, all of it should be democratically you know, discussed among these groups and so forth, but is there anything like, say, Medicare for All or something like that, that, that uh, you, you would say those that aren't on board with that need to reconsider whether they're actually fighting against the goals, broadly speaking, of this justice movement, right? Like, are there certain things that like, no, 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 we don't just need unity. You need to get on board with this or you don't understand the problem, something like that. I don't know.
2: Well, I think that I think that if if any of us says that we're in favor of reproductive rights, we really have to think about whether whether that's true. <laughs> and I think we should, you know, I think we should push our friends and neighbors and the people that we do politics with to think about that too. And the, and God knows we should push the people who represent us in our state legislatures and our federal legislature, right? Um, if you believe in reproductive rights, exactly, then why the hell are you not in favor of universal health care? You know, do you know what it's like today to, you know, try and have a child in most parts of the United States? Hospitals are closing all the time. Maternal mortality, you know, in rural America, even even for white people who are supposedly favored by the Republican Party and everything like maternal mortality is, you know, is a scandal in much of this country. Um, You know, so. Even getting, getting plain access to the things that are, are literally required for having a child in anything like safety, like those are vanishingly present for many, many Americans. Why are we not going, you know, going ballistic about that? That's right. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and, why and did I, nobody talk about that yesterday when we were talking about the fiftieth anniversary of right. Roe versus Wade? I don't right. know.
0: Well, I, I think in part that the elites. I know it's a rhetorical question, but I, the, the elites, right? That. Um, that are truly liberal in the economic liberal embrace capitalism sense don't think that freedom entails anything other than like a marketized kind of freedom and a freedom of choice that ignores the resource inequality and access and all I mean the reason that the socialist left fills in these gaps is because they notice that that's not really freedom if you don't have the material opportunities and and ability to 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 choose meaningfully and and that is just a, a ideological battle that we can't let I think. the the kind of uh, economic liberals win when it comes to this fight, frankly.
2: Yeah, and sometimes it's really hard. Um, One example is here in Vermont, we just won an overwhelming victory, a constitutional Mm -hmm. amendment. Um, And that was the organization whose board, um, I'm now the vice president of, I was the president during most of this campaign. And it was a campaign for a reproductive liberty amendment. You know, and we use the word liberty very deliberately because the... The polling showed that, that people would favor something that was called liberty, um, not called equality, not called freedom, certainly not called justice, right? And by design, it allows this kind of thin version of freedom. Um, so you can have an abortion if you can pay for one. Um, you can be free from sterilization abuse. Um, again, if, um, if you don't need sterilization because it's a form of, con- it's a reliable form of contraception. Um And, you know, you can seek uh, whatever reproductive services you want as a, somebody in a same sex relationship or somebody who's trans or non-binary, right? That our constitutional amendment assures all of those things. Um, But it doesn't say that there's going to be a hospital when you need one. It doesn't say that there's going to be a doctor who takes your insurance, you know, none of that stuff. And, Sometimes I think we have to take a risk, and maybe we maybe we don't win in the short term, or maybe we don't win as big in the short term. Maybe we need to educate ourselves and our communities. Um,
1: yeah.
0: yeah, and maybe in right. the long
2: term, I think we win more.
0: In the long term, we win more if people realize that that's not what liberty or freedom should mean or means,
2: right? Yeah. Uh,
1: I've just got one last question in our last couple of minutes here, um, just to to turn back a little bit and talk about overpopulation phobia. You, you, you mentioned this quite a bit in the book and, um, uh, I'm not sure if you draw the connection explicitly, but it's, it seems clear to me reading through it that, that the overpopulation like freak out in the 1970s is at least heavily influenced by eugenics. Um, and, uh, that this, I think we still see it today with uh with climate change um you you have these sort of like hair shirt environmentalists saying that you know that, that that there's just like they look at the demographic projections for you know Nigeria this is just impossible we, and not like the main thing which is like how much fossil fuels are rich countries using and could it be done more efficiently but um. Yeah. Could, could you talk a a little bit in our last couple of minutes about you know how the overpopulation uh, movement kind of hooked into the the sterilization folks and the sort of uh, damaging legacy there?
2: Yeah, that's so important. Um, I will. I will add. Just thinking about the present day. Um, I don't run in circles very much. Um, but of course it's all around me here in Vermont. Like I think the environmental movement needs to have (laughs) some of these tough conversations too, just as right, just as the reproductive rights movement needs to have some of these tough conversations because there is this, um, I don't know, this conversation that, that bubbles up and recedes, bubbles up and recedes about how, um, limiting population is the only way to save the planet. And some of that, um, starts with, or at least has as a touchstone, this guy named Garrett Hardin, who shows up in my story. He was one of the founders of NARAL. And he also wrote a very important and disturbing essay called The Tragedy of the Commons, um, in which he made an argument about the excessive demands on the planet, um, that overpopulation was posing. Um, uh, late in his life, Hardin became um, an anti-immigrant maniac. And he was actually called, his views were called fascist by um, the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, So he's not a guy that we should be celebrating in our reproductive rights movement or in our environmental movement. Um, But I know his work is still out there and and it has a long legacy. So, but just to go back, um, it was very much related to Eugenics. Eugenics is, you know, the pseudo science of racial difference in the early part of the 20th century. Um, a lot of the time we think it went away after World War II, you know, the negative example of Nazi eugenics, Nazi racism, right? It didn't go away. Um, it gets reborn as so-called population control after World War II. And, um, the, the compulsive or, um, mandatory sterilization policies of the early Part of the 20th century actually transmogrify after World War II, and sort of go under the radar. And it's not um, it's not happening directly through like government eugenics boards or government sterilization boards, but within institutions um, and within welfare departments, within institutions especially dealing with disabled people, and within welfare departments um, that are serving poor people disproportionately Black and Latina, um, right? There is a policy of sterilization that, um, that persists and that is very much motivated by these kind of racialist, racist, pseudo-eugenic kinds of grounds. You know, the, it's dressed up in a new scientific language, the language of population control, and it's very much tied to the Cold War, the social science of the Cold War. Um, but you know, they're never talking about, um, the overpopulation of uh, New York City wasps. <laughs> you know, somehow that's never the problem. The problem is Native Americans living on reservations, you know, who then are sterilized in vast numbers in the by the Indian Health Service or Puerto Ricans living on the island of Puerto Rico. And, you know, sterilization is seen as a solution to their poverty. Or it's talking about Africa. It's talking about Latin America. It's talking about um, every place but the place where the rich white people are. Um yeah. so it's really disturbing. <laughs> I just have to say that. It's really disturbing and really persistent.
1: There was a profile I think in the New York Times of this guy, maybe he lives in Vermont actually, who was like part part of the human extinction movement saying that people should stop having kids, people so we should just like end the human race and my attitude is you first <laughs> man. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Where's the it's a
2: great example of people making public policy for everybody else but themselves. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, any any more questions, Alexi?
2: No, no,
0: that's it. I just invite uh, Felicia, if you have any uh, last thoughts uh, on anything we maybe didn't ask you already or that you want to kind of put a coda on the conversation um, for or anything like that.
2: Well, maybe two things. Alexi, I didn't really pick up on it when you were talking about um, communities of faith. Um, but I think that's really important. And I do try to underline that in particular at the end of the book. Um, and in part, I'm coming from my own experience. You know, I'm, I'm part of a synagogue. Um, and I'm part of the social action committee in the synagogue. And, you know, those are nice people. They're, they're my friends. Um, we don't really do anything. You know, we read books about racial justice and stuff. But the people that I, Wound up researching and writing about in this book, they really did stuff, right? They were, they were liberal Protestants and Jew and liberal Jews who were deeply disturbed by the injustices they saw that were created by the abortion laws in particular. And they took enormous risks, right? They, they risked going to jail, helping people find safe legal procedures. And they also, they were working to bring down and unjust legal regime. They even in the, the clergy consultation service on abortion, which was the largest abortion referral service in the country by far, like much, much bigger than Jane, if you've heard about Jane, um, they founded the first freestanding abortion clinic in the United States after New York changed its law. And so they proved that abortion could be provided on kind of a mass scale in a way that was safe and legal and relatively affordable. Like, that's the kind of religious social action I'd like to see today. And I'd like to ask, you know, other people who are part of religious institutions or part of political parties and movements, like, what are what are we prepared to do?
0: That's right yeah. today. Yeah.
2: You know, are we prepared to go to jail or risk going to jail? Um and if not, why you know at what point do we start putting our money where our mouth is
0: yeah and when does inaction mean a lack of of true faith right it's uh it's it's so cool how you recount how the inspiration from Dr. King and the direct action of the civil rights movement and even the the letter from birmingham jail uh there was a parallel there to to what motivated um their um faithful response and strategies um in in, in addressing justice here right and that's that's a good guide i think.
2: Yeah, that's right. They, these are people who, they learned how to break the law. You know, they sort of built that muscle.
0: Because man's law law for them was not the law. Because that means for them, there can be unjust human law and there has to be something done because of a higher calling. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a real, real pleasure and education reading your book and, and, and being with you here. So thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys.
1: Felicia Kornblue, a woman's life is a human life. The book is called my mother, our neighbor and the journey from reproductive rights to reproductive justice. I think a very, uh, well-crafted and, um, uh, cogent, uh, entry into the debate about reproductive liberties, freedoms, whatever you want to call them. Uh, uh, as you know, abortion rights are under unprecedented assault and, really worth picking up. And, you know, you know, you can also find uh, Felicia's work at the American Prospect, the world's best magazine. So (laughs) thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for the shout out.
1: Cheers. And thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.